Well, open your Bibles this evening, please, to the book of Ecclesiastes. As I said this morning, in fact, the last couple of weeks, we're going to start a new series. It's so difficult in trying to sometimes uh, decide what series to preach because anywhere you turn in the Bible, uh, it's all good. Uh, but there's sometimes certain things are, I think, more helpful than other times. And, and I think that's true in regards to this study, especially when we consider the generation in which we live and the things that we see today. And uh, tonight we're just going to have an introduction. This is not a, actually a, uh, a study of the book itself. It's a study more about the book so we can be acquainted with it and uh, that'll help us hopefully later on. I do want to read the first three verses because it basically sets the tone for what's to follow. It says in verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? I don't know. That's quite an introduction. Uh, you know, you hear something like that, and it's like, please don't tell me anymore. Uh, you know, I've heard, I've heard enough. I'll, I'll come back at a later time whenever there's a different ser sermon subject. And so, but if ever there was a book for our time, I think this is it. And in fact, it is a book for all times. It deals with all of the issues that have troubled man since the fall. When we look back at Adam and think about what he had and reflect upon what he lost, it is a sad, sad picture. And ever since that time, we've been dealing with the fallout of the fall. And here we see, a, I think, a perfect picture of the curse that man brought upon himself. I I love the way that in Wilmington's Bible, uh, Guide to the Bible, he used a couple of illustrations in speaking about uh, the, the philosophies of life. And so uh, he, he claimed that there was, ba he, had, he had heard basically two different statements that were in response to questions concerning uh, their personal philosophy in life. The first one came from Clarence Dow. Uh, in case you don't know, younger people, he, Clarence Dow was the one in the Scopes trials, f famous uh, many, many years ago when the whole debate was going on about uh, creation. And Clarence Dow was the unbelievers. He was an absolute agnostic lawyer, a brilliant man, but, uh, but not smart enough to realize that there is a God but here was, his, here was his response to that question about his personal philosophy of life. He said, there is a statement in the Bible which summarizes my life. It says, we have toiled all night and have taken nothing. Now, he wasn't a believer, but whenever he ran across that statement in the Bible, he he admitted, boy, that describes my life. I've toiled, I've worked, I've labored all of my life and have absolutely nothing to show for it. And that's the conclusion that a lot of people come to. The other one happened to be from a, from a, 
a sewer worker uh, in Chicago, and they ask him, and this is, quote, the best that I can pronounce the words as he did. I digged the ditch to get to the money to buy the food, to get enough strength to dig the ditch. You talk about a merry-go-round, I mean, that's it. I go out and I dig the ditch so I can get enough money to go and buy some food. It'll give me strength to go back and dig the ditch tomorrow. And I spend my whole life digging ditches, and that's all there is to it. And so that's the way it is with a lot of people. That's why Charles Swindoll entitled his book, Living on the Ragged Edge. And boy, if ever there was a good title, I think that's it. Living on the Ragged Edge. Another famous preacher, well-known preacher at least, uh, made the statement, he said, if, if I were asked to teach the whole Bible, he said, I would be tempted to start with Ecclesiastes because it asks the questions that the rest of the Bible answers. I remember reading about one preacher who said that were he to meet an unsaved person somewhere and they engage in conversation about uh, their need in life, that they would probably start out with the book of Ecclesiastes because it shows where man is without God. Now, most of us would say, oh, we'd start off over there in the Romans, go down the Romans road. We'll show him that he's a, you know, that he's a sinner in need of salvation and that Christ died for his sins and that he can be saved. Now, that's the path most of us would take. And that just might be the reason that there are so many people today that have made professions of faith who do not possess salvation. You know, someone has sold them on the idea that if you just pray this simple prayer, you know, that you'll be saved. Whether you feel like it or not, or whether you know it or not, you'll be saved. You don't have anything to worry about. And so they say a little prayer. And by the way, if you're depending on your prayer for salvation, that's not one bit different than depending on your baptism or church membership or good works. Prayer can't save you. Amen. Prayer can be involved in us expressing our acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's not the prayer that saves us. It's the blood of Christ. So before we, and as we go through this book, I hope that you'll see what these, uh, what these folks said was true because we're going to spend a lot of time studying this book uh, probably at least two weeks just in the first chapter so we can get started off slowly but yet have a good foundation and laying a good foundation is important to whatever we build up on it and it's also important I think to uh, encourage you to not miss any of the studies because sometimes you know right in the middle of trying to get the picture, you know, if you can't be here or something, why that becomes a hindrance to really getting the big picture. And so you need to see how each section relates to the other sections, and you need to see how each section relates to the overall theme of the book. So tonight, I'll not take any more time that's necessary, but there's some things that we need to, we need to know about this book. And to start with, it has to do with the author of the book. Now, we know the Holy Spirit is the one who is the actual author of the book, but he worked through human instrumentality. And the person that he uses here uh, is identified for us, at least to some extent. It ought to be sufficient. I mention that because certain critics have gone to great lengths trying to prove 
that Solomon was not actually the author of the book. But, you know, in truth, they are simply wasting their time uh, trying, to, trying to establish that because there's no way that you can. He's not named, but undoubtedly he is the author of the book. Look in verse 1 again. It speaks here of the writer as being, noticed the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, David had other sons, right? We know that. But there's none of the others that could be called the king in Jerusalem except Solomon. And then in verse 12, he says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. So that settles the matter. We know that we're listening and reading from the words of Solomon, the king of Jerusalem, the one who was, was in charge, the one who had all authority at that time over those people. A man who had experienced all of the ups and downs of life. A man that had great success and great, great failure in his life. So he's the author of the book, but the question then arises, what was his aim? What was the purpose? What is the aim of the book? And that is crucial that we understand what the purpose or the aim of the book is. To do that, I think it's helpful to think of it as a sermon. Notice he spoke of himself here as the preacher. And it's good, I think, to look at this as though it is a sermon. It would be quite a long sermon, but nevertheless a very good sermon. But it's a sermon, and if we think of it that way, we're able to really pinpoint the theme of the book, which is found at the very beginning. You know, if I had to describe in my own words, I would simply say this. It is to show the emptiness of life without God. That's what it is all about. It's showing us here that, that the chief good in life is God, and without Him, we have nothing. So this gives us a picture of the proper perspective, but before it gets to that, it paints this ugly picture of what life is like here on earth without God. And we could just go on and on and on talking about the aim of the book, but I think that sums it up quite well. I think that's, at this point, all we need to know about it, uh, that uh, life without God is empty, it is vanity, and all we do is worthless. So if, if you had set out to make that the aim of a sermon, a Sunday school lesson, or whatever it was, then that raises the question, what approach are you going to take? How are you going to approach the subject? How are you going to present the subject? Well, we can see how Solomon did by, firstly, by looking at the key words that he uses in this book. We find the word man 47 times, 47 times he uses the word man. So we, we know it has a lot to do with people here upon the earth and their philosophy, their attitude, their questions, their problems. And then the next word that is used a lot of times is the word vanity. It's used 37 times. Vanity, it's soap bubble, it's empty, it's worthless, it's nothingness. 37 times he uses that word to describe what he sees and what he has experienced in life. The next word that we see repeatedly, in fact 36 times, is the word labor. 
It's not fun, it's not games, it's labor. He's simply telling us that here in this life under the sun that it is, it's hard, it's difficult, it's labor. And then he uses this phrase, under the sun, 30 times throughout the message. So there, there uh, is a, a hint as to what this is all about man and his and, and his labor and it all ending up in vanity and it's all under the sun now when we go through this book it, you you'll no doubt notice that we're going to be reading some verses that seem to contradict with other scriptures and the reason for that is because this is to be understood whenever we realize that he is writing from man's viewpoint instead of God's viewpoint. This is the under the sun perspective. And so as he gives what man thinks about life, the conclusions that man has come to, you're going to read things that are, that are contrary to what is true, contrary to reality. That doesn't mean the Bible is wrong. The Bible is true in every way. But sometimes in speaking the truth, it speaks about the fallacies and the lies that man has come to believe. And so here we see a record of man trying to find purpose, trying to find satisfaction without God. And he's looking at life as it is under the sun instead of the perspective of eternity. Think about that eternity if we could just if we could just see things as God does boy all of a sudden everything would fall into place you know we look at our lives and the difficulties that we go through and the pain that we suffer and the questions that we have and that's why we keep on asking that question why why me why this why now because there are a lot of confusing things in life that we cannot understand and things that we will not understand until when? Until we are yonder in eternity and we look back upon this from the vantage point of eternity and then all of a sudden it all makes sense. But boy, here in this life, it's all under the sun and we can't see from the perspective that God looks upon things from a woman uh, by the name of Henrietta Mears many years ago she wrote a lot about the various books of the Bible and she made a, a statement in regards to the book of Ecclesiastes that that I thought was very good she said you do not have to go outside the Bible to find merely human philosophy of life God has given us in the book of Ecclesiastes the record of all that human thinking and natural religion has ever been able to discover discerning the, dis, de, concerning the meaning and goal of life. The arguments in the book, therefore, now here's what I want you to get. The arguments in the book, therefore, are not God's arguments, but God's record of man's arguments. That's why he used the word man and the phrase under the sun so many times. It's man's arguments in regards to these matters. It's not God making declarations about things as it really is, but it's in the false misconceptions that man has concerning what life is. So... 
that's, that's the approach that he is taking in regards to this matter. Amen. Well, the next question, I guess, has to do with how in the world are we going to arrange this book in any way that makes sense? It's, you know, at first glance, it's kind of like the book of Proverbs. And somebody likened the study of the book of Proverbs to reading the, reading the telephone book. It changes subjects every line. And, and that seems to be true. So whenever we come here to the book of Ecclesiastes, we see maybe a little bit of the same because it seems to jump from one thing to another. At one moment he's speaking about the mud on the earth and the next minute he's talking about the stars in heaven. So how does Solomon arrange this? And I'm not sure I can give you the perfect answer to that, but... And we could divide it in a lot of ways, but I'm convinced after studying the book that it's divided into two main parts. There is, first of all, the negative. That's chapters 1 through 6. But when we get to chapter 7, it changes over to the positive. And so he's giving us the negative view and also the positive view. And, and as we look at these, we see two things. We see his disappointments, and then we see his deductions. And we'll see that over and over again as we go through this book. And I, as I said, there might be a better way to outline the book, but uh, I think that is the one that makes the most sense. I think that is the natural division of the book, and I'll explain that a bit further in just a few minutes here but since I plan to examine absolutely every verse of this book we're going to cover all of the information so you know don't get too concerned about the divisions of the book because we're going to get to all, all of those different things we're not going to leave anything out but the main point I want you to see here at the very beginning is that Solomon discovers that the world has nothing to offer that will satisfy and that God alone can meet our deepest needs. He learned something that most people never learn. And as we look around today, as you talk to your neighbor, your co-worker, your classmates, or whoever it is, those that do not know Christ as their Savior, this is where they're at in life. They have yet to discover that there's nothing in this world that's ever going to really satisfy them without God. And for them, it's sort of a, you know, last resort. That's the way it was for me before I was saved. I tried, you know, everything that I knew to try to have fun and enjoy life, and, and, uh, and I, I couldn't find it anywhere. It was all empty, just like Solomon said. So... It's such a sad fact that most people never see their need of God. They see their physical need, they go to the doctor, they take their medicine, they get their checkups and they do that. They see their need for R&R &R and so they take time to kick back and relax and they get out there and enjoy the things of life. They even see the need for work and so they get out and earn their bread by the sweat of their brow in order to feed their family. They see the need of that but they never see their need of God, and naturally, naturally that always ends up in disappointment. But Solomon was different. Solomon was determined, 
I'm going to get to the root of this matter. I'm going to find out really what is going on and what it takes for man to be happy. So with that in mind, I want you to think about his disappointments. That's the first six chapters. And then we'll just briefly discuss his deductions. In these first six chapters, he speaks about human wisdom. He speaks about human pleasures. He speaks about early, uh, earthly works and, and wealth. And there are some other things we'll get to later on. But the conclusion of that is that none of these provide lasting satisfaction. And, and, and he shares with us his, his experiences here. And then he comes to the conclusion, well, it's all vanity, but, but it's viewed from being under the sun. In reality, those things are not all vanity. Those things, some of those things, such as the labor of our hands and things of that nature, can be very important. But viewed from his vantage point, looking at life just on this horizontal plane under the sun, it's all meaningless. He discovered that life in chapter 2 and verse 11, that life is futile. This is one of his disappointments. It's, it's just futile. I, I mean, it's absolutely, it's absolutely worthless. It's just, I, I'm wasting my time at whatever it is that I'm doing. It's futile, and it's a horrible thing to come down, you know, to the end of your life and look back on it and think, wow, there's no meaning at all. It, it wouldn't have made any difference if I had never been born. So he says it's futile. Then in verse 17 of chapter 2, he says it's grievous. Now, for it to be futile is one thing. To be grievous is another. That means it's a rough road, grievous. It's difficult. It's hard. And, and we all know that, don't we? If you don't, you'll find out before very long because man that's born of a woman is a few days and what? Full of trouble. That's what the Bible says. And then he says in chapter 4, verse 1, that one of the disappointments is the fact that it was sorrowful. It was sorrowful. And then he goes on to tell us in the very next verse that it is without any purpose. There's no rhyme, no reason, no purpose at all for me being here on earth. Now, keep in mind that he was the richest, wisest. Now, th let that sink in. He is the richest and he is the wisest. He is the most powerful person on earth at that time. That means that, that he could do whatever he wanted to do. There was nobody to stop him, no one to set limitations, nobody going to say, you can't do that because he's the king. He can do whatever he wants to do. He's got the money to do it. And so he has everything that people strive for, and yet the bottom line is it's just a soap bubble world. It's all meaningless. So... He goes through all of these experiences, and, and I use that word because he talks about the fact that for him life was, a, a, was an experiment. We'll look at that next week probably. An experiment. You know, it's not just what he discovered by staggering through life, but he's actually approaching this, as we might say, from a scientific standpoint i'm going to conduct this experiment see if it works if it doesn't work i'll move on to this so he tries wine he tries women he tries works he tries all of these different things and none of them work now 
you might suppose that after all of his bitter experiences, I'm talking about his disappointments in these first six chapters, you might think that he would just fold his hands and say, I give up, or throw his hands up in despair and say, I give up. There's not any need in going any further. I've searched the world over. I've tried everything known to man. None of it works. It's all meaningless. I just, I just quit, but he didn't. And that's why when we get to chapter number 7, we see all of a sudden him learning things and making certain deductions from these experiences that he went through. So there, beginning in chapter 7, we see a change of perspective. A, a professor by the name of William Barrick many years ago wrote about that change as he observed it. And he said that the change here in chapter 7, verse 1, the change happens when he says a good name is better than a good ointment. And that adjective good there operates, he claimed, as a bridge between chapter 6 and chapter number 7 and also between the first half of the book and the second half of the book. And so the author is begins utilizing this phrase, better than, or which means, means uh, more good, uh, or better than something else. And so he does that because now we are offered, we offered a series of contrasts. Whereas before we see the folly of just depending on what the world can offer for our satisfaction in life. Now he's saying that there is something more. There is something better. And so he gives us this contrast in order to show us the superiority of wisdom over foolishness and righteousness over wickedness. And so when we get here to chapter 7 and start through that, that's what we see over and over again. We've been looking at all of this negative stuff, and now he begins to shift to those things that are of a positive nature, the things that will produce what men have been looking for ever since the very, very beginning of man's uh, fall here upon the earth. And so uh, I think that professor hit the nail on the head whenever he said that. I think that is absolutely obvious to anyone. If you just read the book, that's the conclusion that you come to. So Solomon is saying that God's wisdom is better than man's. We are such fools as to think that that. If we don't have it figured out, we can figure it out. You know, give us enough time, enough money, enough education, and we'll conduct enough experiments that eventually, why, we put a man on the moon. We discovered a vaccine for this disease. Just, just look at what we've done. And you look at all the things that man has done, and then we're so stupid that some folks can't figure out whether they're a male or a female. You talk about a messed up world. We're living in a messed up world today. Things that are so obvious, things that are obvious to a six-year-old child and ought to be obvious to everyone, they're still staggering around in this, in this mire of confusion created by their, their own folly. And so he's trying to get us, as it were, to shift gears and to understand that if you're going to get the right picture 
you've got to stop looking at everything as it is under the sun, and you've got to see the big picture as though you were looking at it from God's eyes. And that's why when we finally get down to chapter number 12 there, and he gives us the key to success in life, in verse number 13, he says, Fear God and keep his commandments. He tells us that's the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. And that's absolutely true. That's what it's all about. We can find satisfaction. We can find peace. We can be a success in life. If we do that, fear God and keep his commandments. And we look around today, however, and we see that there is no fear of God between uh, with people toward God. There's no fear of God today. People just do whatever they want to do, and they're not at all, they don't feel a bit threatened by by God's promises of judgment upon the lawbreakers. That doesn't bother them. They're too foolish to see the danger in the things that they do. Fear God. Now, I understand that word fear has to do with a godly reverence toward God. And there are those folks, you know, that I, I've heard preachers just insist that doesn't mean this kind of fear where you cower down before God that you're really afraid of God. Why not? Let me tell you, the right fear of God, the right reverence for God is that fear of displeasing God, the consequences of it. So that is a part of it, you see. And if that doesn't exist, well, the whole ball of wax is going to come unwound. So, he says, fear God and keep his commandments. Now, naturally, I, I, I'm, I'm just wanting to get jump off right into the middle of some of these verses and start talking about them. Uh, but I think that would be counterproductive because... Uh, well, we'd get lost in some of the details by going through it so rapidly. So next week we're going to do that. But I want to close our thoughts by, uh, by using an example of someone, a, a person, a well-known person who lived here upon this earth that in his great failure left us a wonderful story of how we can avoid making shipwreck out of our life. And I'm talking about a man by the name of Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway was a man who lived life to the hilt. I mean, here is a rugged, two-fisted man's man, as he would have been called back in the day. And he lived in his life, one writer said, he lived in a way that would be the envy to any person uh, you know, in, in the world, he was known, he had this tough guy image, and he was a globetrotter. I would travel the world going from one exotic place to another. He was a big game hunter. He was a bullfighter. He's a man who claimed that he could, he could drink with the best of them, drink them under the table. He was real proud of that fact. He could really hold his liquor. He was married four times and lived his life without any moral restraint at all and no guilt on his conscience. But then on a, on a sunny Sunday morning in Idaho, he pulverized his head with a shotgun, committed suicide, just blowed his head off, so to speak. Now, why? How could that be? 
that a man would, would determine to leave God out of the picture. A man who seemingly had everything the world offers. He was famous. Uh, he was rich. He could basically do whatever he wanted to do. All the things that people crave, those things that they have a great desire for, he could do that. But the end result is he commits suicide. Why would he do that? Well, I'm so glad that he left, he left in his own words the reason why. As he wrote these words explaining why he did what he did. He said, I live in a vacuum that is as lonely as a radio tube when the batteries are dead and there's no current to plug into. Get that, get that picture in your mind. I'm like in a vacuum tube and I am lonely as a radio tube that, that has no power attached. There's no life to it whatsoever. And that's the way I feel, isolated and alone, and life is meaningless. Now, what really makes his story so very important is the fact that he grew up in a Christian home. Whenever I read this story many years ago, I, I, I just can't help but think about my children, your children, these children, these young people these young people that have grown up in a good, godly Christian home, and thank God for that. And he did. In fact, his grandparents were missionaries. His daddy was a close personal friend of the famous preacher D.L. Moody. They were good friends. And so here is a man that is raised in church with all of this great influence, and yet, and yet he rejected God. And finding life so depressing, he blew his brains out. He had been a war correspondent in World War I, and he had witnessed all of, the, all of the horrors of war. And as a result of that, he became hard and bitter. And he was just determined right then, I'm going to live my life on my terms. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to go out and I'm, I'm going to try my wings. I'm going, to, I'm going to do whatever I want to do in life. The same attitude that, that most people have today. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. It's my life. I can do with it whatever I want. Well, that was his attitude. So he tried everything that the world had to offer and he concluded what? Well, he concluded that it's all what? Vanity like Solomon did, but he called it a vacuum. And he said, I'm as lonely as a radio tube when the batteries are dead and there's no current to plug into. Oh, I would to God that some way or another that he would have discovered there is a current that we can plug into. There is a connection that we can make, and that connection is with God. But when we look at Hemingway's life, we see what life is like under the sun. That's life under the sun on the horizontal plane. Uh, Gleason Archer said, talking about Ecclesiastes, that it was to convince men of the uselessness of any worldview which does not rise above the horizon 
of man himself. That's a good, that's a good explanation of what this book is. It's trying to show people how useless it is to find what you're looking for in this life if all you do is look on the horizon of self. We've got to look above and beyond, and I don't particularly like that phrase that the 12-step program uses in the AA meetings and that higher power, but I want you to know our God is a higher power. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. He is what we need. Amen. So I was sitting there this week, and I thought, okay, how am I going to sum this introduction up? And I come to the conclusion that I would say it like that: this, and it's when you try to make something out of nothing, you don't have anything. Yeah. When you try to make something out of nothing, and that's all the world has to offer is nothing. It has nothing substantial, nothing that's going to last, nothing that's going to satisfy. You try to make something out of nothing and you don't have anything. It's a zero. It is vanity, just like Solomon said. Well, I promised you I wouldn't keep you any longer than I had to tonight. And that's all I want to say about the introduction. But again, I want to encourage you to be here for all of our study through it. Come at least the first four or five weeks. If you don't like it, then you can stop, you know. But And it's not a matter of whether we like it or not, really. It's a matter of whether we can profit from it or not. And I'll tell you, if you have an unsaved friend or somebody that's just floundering around in this world and that you can tell their life has come unravel and they don't know which way to turn and what to do, please try to encourage them to come so they can get a picture of what life under the sun is really like. And then when we get over to chapter 7, we'll show them something better than that. There's something a whole lot better than that. And it's all been prepared by our Lord. I'm so thankful for the one God added to our church this morning. And, uh, you know, whenever the invitation is given, you never know what might be on somebody's heart. There might be times of dear brother George. Is George back there tonight? There he is. Uh, he just blesses my heart. I him coming to pray week after week. And I know some of the burdens that's on his heart. And so I suspect I know some of the things he's praying about. But it, it kind of reminded me of that first year, especially after I got saved. I think the preacher could have preached on Mary had a little lamb and God would have used God would have used it in some way to convict my heart. And really, I got kind of worried that the people was going to think, "Well, he did what in the world? See, he's down there in the last three or four weeks in a row. What's he doing this time?" You know. Uh, well, I you never know. And, and boy, was God ever dealing with me some things that those people they they didn't know they didn't have a clue. They just knew I got saved, and then all of a sudden I surrendered to preach and. And, boy, they didn't know what to expect next. And uh, so we never know what to expect whenever the Word of God is given. And maybe something tonight, just in this simple introduction, has caused you to well, give some second thoughts about the life that you're living and what you've been searching for. Maybe you just want to come and pray, but there might be someone here tonight, I don't know, that's never received the Lord as their Savior. It's possible. They might even be a member of the church. But whatever you do, don't leave here like that. Don't leave. You can't run that risk 
of going another day without Christ as your Savior. Tim, come on up, and we're going to sing at least one verse of invitation. And if God's speaking to your heart, you come, whatever the need might be. It might be you want to come and pray for your neighbor, or it might be you want to pray for some of your family members. I, I don't know. That's up to you. But let God have his way. Father, how we thank you for your word, for the way that it enlightens our mind. Lord, without it, we would be so very uninformed, so very foolish. And so we're thankful that you give us the information that we need to live the life that we should. And then beyond that, through your word, it not only enlightens us, but it enables us to do those things. It transforms our lives. So may you touch each of us here tonight. Change us in some way. It might be some way that is small and seemingly insignificant, but it's a way it's a way that will make a big difference in the life that we live in this coming week. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. While we stand and sing. 582. Thank you, Lord, for saving.